What's up, guys? My name is Sam, and I'm the creator and host of Creme de la Crime podcast. The mission of this show is to bring awareness to unsolved missing persons cases from all across the country. In the United States, 600,000 adults and children are reported missing every single year. Although most are quickly found, there are still tens of thousands that remain missing for more than one year. As of 2022, there are still more than 17,000 unsolved missing persons cases and 13,000 unidentified body cases across the United States that remain open. For the first year, I'm going alphabetical order by state and talking about cases involving all ages, races, and backgrounds. Don't forget to subscribe and join me every single Thursday to hopefully help bring these people home. Welcome to episode 58. This is True Crime B&B. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And today, Bailey is going to do the first story, and I'm going to do the second story. Mm-hmm. Bailey's a little concerned about her pronunciations on this. Yeah, I already told Mom I'm not even going to try. I looked everything up, I promise, but a lot of these sounds I can't make. So <laughs> we're going to do the Americanized version as best I can. You're such an American. Yeah. And once again, I have to give a trigger warning because there is a child. All right. I'm going to tell you about one of the most hated men in Sweden. All right. April 5th, 2008, Ingla Hoagland told her mother that she would be riding her bike home from either soccer practice or a friend's house, depending which article. Wherever she was riding her bike home from was about three miles away from her house. She was only 10 years old at the time, but the town where she lived Stjarnsund, Sweden, was a very small town and relatively safe. They didn't really have a big problem with crime there. Okay. Also, she's only 10, but she had a cell phone on her, so her mom knew, okay, she's leaving now, it's going to take her about 10, 20 minutes to get home, and I can call her if anything goes wrong. When the time frame of when she had been expecting Ingla to come home came and went, her mother, Karina, attempted to call her cell phone with no success. So she decided to take her car out and drive the route, which her daughter had been supposedly biking home through. Mm -hmm. She didn't find anything. She stopped and talked to some of the neighbors, and they said, yeah, we saw her pass a little while ago, but we figured she's probably home by now. Finally, on her way back to the house, she spotted Ingla's bike off of the path into the woods. That's got to be such a crappy feeling. It's like, holy crap, there's my kid's bike. Mm-hmm. And no Ingla. And yeah. no kid attached to the kid's bike. Exactly. And it was, she was only 10. She was tiny. This bike was over a bunch of brush several meters back into the woods. That's not, you, she wouldn't just kick it off the side of the road and leave it there to begin with. But she's not going to lift this heavy-ass bike way into the woods. So yeah. she knows something bad has happened. She's Somebody big sure. took it back there. Yes. Or she also noticed on the dirt path that it was off of, there were tire track marks, so her first thought was somebody hit her and ran. Oh, no. Okay. But either way, she called the police immediately. The police began to investigate it. They had helicopters out there looking for her as best they could, and word started to travel around town of the missing girl. A few days after, as the word got around town of the missing girl, a man who lived along the path where Ingla would have gone down came forward to the police and told them he had some possible clues. That exact day that she had gone missing, he had just bought a brand new digital camera and was out on that path taking a walk and taking pictures with that camera. Okay. So he provided the camera roll to them, and they actually found some pictures he had taken of Ingla as she rode past his house on the trail. Here, I actually have that, and we can post this onto our Instagram. 
but he got a picture, and it's a pretty clear picture. You, if you know that girl, you would be able to tell. Yeah, that's for who sure. That is. And so he said, "Okay, well, she definitely made it this far on her own." But the next photo in the camera roll was this car that was following immediately behind it's a her. Sob. Yes, it was a red sob. And you can also see in that picture very distinctly. You can read the license plate. Yes, of that you sob. can very easily. So the police saw that and said, well, how close, because you can't tell with the pictures, how close was that car to her? Did it seem like maybe they knew her? Like, what was the situation? And he said, no, they were several hundred yards back, but they did turn the same exact way she was turning when she left the road and everything. Okay. They decided to contact the owner of this sub. So she turned off of the road, and what did she turn on to? Like a path? It was all dirt roads through a forested area, but there were several ways it forks off okay. is the best way I can describe it. It makes sense that if they just also lived in that neighborhood, they went that way. So he wasn't that suspicious of this car. But right, it wasn't just going back to nothingness inside the forest. Yeah, it wasn't like a path that only led to her house. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The police were successfully able to track down the owner of the Saab. He was a 42-year-old man by the name of Anders Eklund, who also was a convicted sex offender. Oh, boy. And they decided to bring him in for an interrogation. That seems appropriate. On April 13th, after several days of keeping him in custody, interrogating him, and eight days after Angla's disappearance, Anders finally confessed to having murdered the young girl and directed the police to where her body could be found. And I don't want to be graphic. Let's just say he strangled her, sexually assaulted her, and then burned her out in the woods. But this is not the end of this story, unfortunately, as he also, during this interrogation process, confessed to an, at the time, unsolved murder from Fallon, Sweden, from the year 2000, which is another town which is about 40 minutes away from this town where he's currently living. And that was how long before this one? Eight years prior. Oh my gosh, somebody's family has been waiting eight Eight years. Eight years, Similarly to what had happened to Ingla on June 4th, 2000... 31-year-old Pernilla Helgren had been walking home alone from a party in Fallon City Center. She lived in Stockholm, but she was actually back home to her hometown of Fallon for the summer to visit her mom for a weekend. And you would think that she would be in more danger in Stockholm, but no, she comes back to this tiny Tiny little town. town. Mm -hmm. Where she knows everybody. She grew up with all these people. And she probably felt completely safe there. Yep. So she'd been walking home alone from this party in the city center back to her mom's house. The last person to have seen her that evening was a 16-year-old from the back of a taxi. So the taxi had passed Pernilla on the side of the road. And the 16-year-old is looking out the window of the taxi and notices this girl walking home and this man come up behind her and gets on top of her and starts attacking her. And so she literally saw the attack in process and didn't have a cell phone. She didn't know what to do. So she got home after the taxi ride and immediately called the police and told them, I think I saw an assault. Like, this is where it was. Wouldn't the taxi have some way to contact their dispatcher or something? I don't know if she just thought maybe they were drunk friends messing around or something like that, but then she got home and realized, just in case, maybe I should report that because it seemed if she didn't know that man, that was a very bad situation for that woman. Yeah. When she called the police, she provided a sketch to them of the man she had seen, which was not very detailed. It was dark and... All she saw was his back, you know? So. Yeah. But she could tell them that he was heavy set, and she described him as looking like a trucker. That's all she could say. All right. She also told them where the assault, she assumed, 
had been. And when they arrived to that location, they found scraps of clothing, so it did match up to a violent assault, but nobody was in the area. They decided to bring in police dogs at that point, and that is what led them further into the woods where they found Pernilla's body. Okay, so they found it at the time. It wasn't eight years later that they yeah, found no, it. Yeah, no, her body was found the same day because that girl had called and said, Okay. I saw this happen here. Yeah, so she knew the general location of where they might find her. Mm-hmm. Pernilla's body had been found in the woods, nude except for a sock, and with obvious strangulation marks on her neck. Also, she was found only a few yards from her mother's home. So, literally, same exact MO. So close. Down to the T. So close to safety. It's heartbreaking, right? Yeah. They were, at the time in 2000, able to obtain DNA, but... Until Anders' arrest in 2008, they didn't have anybody to compare the DNA to or anything to... So it just went cold, and they had nothing. Right, because if they haven't been arrested before, then they won't have any reason to have had that DNA on file. And the worst part is, he was arrested multiple times. He was a convicted sex offender, and for whatever reason, they just didn't have his DNA on file. I think think that it was a long time after DNA technology became prevalent. Mm Mm-hmm. Before they started routinely taking swabs from people and keeping it on file, thinking, hmm, there might be other crimes that come up that this person has committed. And like you said, rural Sweden, how small is that police department? You know, they're probably very limited on their resources, so. Well, just just like any rural Mm -hmm. anywhere, they're just not going to be as quick to jump on new technology as the cities are, where it's everywhere. Well, it's more necessary in the cities, too, you know. They could probably get by years and years without needing that technology, so it makes sense. Yep. Finally, when he was arrested in 2008 and confessed to murdering Pernilla all the way back then, they compared it, and it did come back as a 100% match. Wow. I'm not going to go through the whole trial. It was kind of... I didn't understand half of it, (laughs) going to be honest. Yeah. Well, translating anything... Like Google Translate, mm-hmm. it's okay if it's conversational, but if it's technical language or yeah. legal language, it's not going to translate exactly right. Well, legal language in different countries, there might not be a word that actually translates that makes sense in English, you know? Yeah. So I'll just get to the, the gist of it. On October 6, 2008, Anders Eklund was found guilty on both homicides and an additional rape that came back from collecting his DNA from 2006, and several child pornography charges. Once they had searched his home, they found a shit ton of porn. Wow. Which they tacked on to his sentence. He received life in prison, but unfortunately in Sweden, that actually a life sentence only means a minimum of 25 years. He has been denied twice so far since 2008 for early release, including actually he just had a trial in January on January 30th of this year, so he just got denied again. Oh, okay. A hearing? A hearing, yeah, to see if he was eligible. Mm-hmm. But as I understood it, it seems in Sweden, after 25 years, they will hold... It doesn't mean they automatically get out after 25 years. It means that after 25 years, they will hold a second trial or have another hearing and during that they can add on additional years based on how they think the chances of reoffending are going to look for that person mm-hmm. and so he might be in jail for the rest of his life that's possible thing is that as soon as he sexually assaulted and murdered a 10 year old you know mm-hmm. this is a, at least has pedophilic tendencies mm-hmm. because otherwise you wait for someone who's of an age that is not 
a minor and a child. But I think that pedophiles are like the least rehabilitatable. They're the ones that reoffend the most often. Because nothing else is going to give them the satisfaction that that specific crime is going to. Yeah. To this day, because he is in jail still, they're still trying to connect it. They're not entirely sure, but they think he was a truck driver for most of his adult life and was all over Sweden as well in multiple other countries. And there are so many cases that happen to line up the time frame of when he delivered something in that area to a person going missing or to a person being raped and not knowing who the attacker was mm. and all these things. And there's multiple children on that list. I'm, I didn't want to go name them all because then it just becomes a name all the possible things. But if you go to his Wikipedia, they do have a list of possible connections that might in the next few years be connected to wow. him. Hopefully they collect the DNA evidence that they saved and maybe they can... Yeah, well, they, a lot of them went as far back as 1992. It's Well, they may have still had some sort of bodily fluid evidence. I just don't know how well they would have preserved it. That's true. If they kept, like, the clothing or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, but I'm glad he's in, I'm glad yeah. he's in prison. I do have one more bullet point, and it's kind of a good meh news, depending on how you feel about prison justice, but I like it. In 2014, Anders got absolutely just obliterated in prison and was hospitalized for a long, long time afterwards because while he was in one of his little workshop prison job things, he was bragging about the little girl that he killed and saying how he doesn't regret it and he would do it again, and a bunch of these prisoners ganged up on him and beat his ass. So, I think that that's a little I think if you're disgusting enough to do it, that's a terrible, mm. terrible thing. If you're disgusting enough to brag about it and think that you did something that you should be proud of, then I, I, at this point, I've lost all hope for you. Yeah, and I, I am glad that they, not necessarily that I think prison justice is always right, you know, but I'm glad that they did beat his ass, and so now it is on record for when these future hearings come up about how remorseful he is, and when he's given the crocodile tears in court, yeah. They're going to pull up this and be like, we have several witnesses here that said, no, he was proud. He's happy he did it. And he said he would like to do it again. And he'd like to do it again. Yeah. Wow. So, well, he's an absolute piece of dog shit. Yeah. Most hated man in Sweden. So. Oh, you did say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's oozing on over to the U.S. The most hated Swedish man in, in, just, in the U.S. <laughs> I wish I could have found more about the victims because... Usually we try to at least some history of their life, what they liked and what they were into, but because a lot of it wasn't, yeah. couldn't find much. Well, and sometimes for children, you aren't going to have as much available to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she went to school. She played on the playground with her friend. She's 10, you know? Yeah. and Ugh, That yeah. says enough. She should be 30 now. She should be 30. No, she shouldn't. She no. should be 27. She should be your age. She should be my age. And then Pernilla should be your age. Wow. She was only 30. Wow. Bonkers. Well, that, that was that was bad. So I have somebody that will bring you back up again. Okay, I'm glad. I mean, he went through something bad, but... Otherwise, he wouldn't be on this podcast, so... That's right. Okay. This is the story of Michael Wong. And he's an Australian man. He was born in 1967. He underwent his undergraduate medical training at the University of Adelaide and focused on traumatic brain injury. 
He received an honors bachelor degree in medical science. And at first I was confused by this because of the way that the medical degrees here work, but it's not the same in Australia. And okay. it sounds like it's not the same in the UK. So I did a little bit of reading on it. The traditional medical training in Australia was historically that medical schools would confer an undergraduate Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery degree upon its medical graduates. But it seems it's beginning to shift, so now they are awarding more postgraduate doctoral degrees, and that's becoming a little bit more common than it used to be. So it's not like they get their undergrad and then they go on to grad school. It's more like they do it. They do it as, right, as as just one course of study, and and there's not a bunch of BERs and, you know, all of the language classes and all that stuff. They probably don't focus as much on that. I think they just go right into their medical training. Okay. Well, it's probably a better way to weed out the people who can and cannot do it, too. That's That's a good point, because you don't have time to ease into it. Do you know how many pharmacists I know who got their undergrad in pre-pharmacy and then have nothing else that they can do with that degree yeah other than go on to grad school and then they get to grad school and they're like i hate this i don't want to do this anymore <laughs> well i think but, a lot of lawyers go through law school and mm-hmm. they get out and they're like wow this is too cutthroat i don't want to do this exactly yeah so anyway the system is a little bit different there yeah i like that system. but but he graduated with honors and he's just a really amazing doctor. He has held academic positions in various groups throughout Australia, Asia, Europe, North America, and he's been a reviewer in the Journal of Neurosciences. So in other words, Dr. Wong is an extremely gifted, accomplished, and respected neurosurgeon and spinal surgeon in Australia. At the time of this story, he was working at the Melbourne Victoria Western Hospital. In addition to his medical practice, he has also regularly taught sessions for undergrad medical students at Melbourne University. Mm-hmm. He is also the husband to his wife, Dr. Christine Wong, who is an oncologist, and father to his son Charles, who was eight at the time of our story, and his daughter Charlotte, who was 11 at the time of the story. Okay. Dr. Wong's workdays were a flurry of responsibility, as you can imagine, with a neurosurgeon. I mean, that's obviously not an easy job. Not just anybody's going to walk in off the street and be able to do that. Well, not just an, he's a neurosurgeon by day, night, or whatever, and then he's also teaching classes, and then he also has a whole ass family with two young kids to take care of. Yeah. That sounds like stressful as shit. And his wife's a doctor, so it's not like he's dumping all of the load on her. So Yeah, wow. <laughs> not only was he performing life-saving and life-altering surgeries on the brain and the spines of patients who had tumors and illnesses and injuries, but he also did pre-op and diagnostic appointments, post-op checkups. In addition to all of that, he also worked in the hospital's outpatient clinic. He took time in carefully diagnosing the root problems that his patients came to him for help with. Many of them had been misdiagnosed by other doctors or in the past long ago, and they were on long-term opioid prescriptions, and they were still in terrible chronic pain. Mm Mm-hmm. He believed that for every patient, there was only one best solution and that it was his responsibility to find the best solution for each individual who came to him for help. And in the long run, his goal for them was to get them off of opioids as much as possible. Yeah, and then just use it as a slap on band-aid, cure-all for everybody. That's right, because it doesn't fix the problem, it just covers the symptoms. Yeah. He would normally arrive at his hospital and contact his registrar, who's like 
an appointment and information manager of sorts okay. to find out if he had any early appointments or if he was needed first thing in the outpatient clinic. If he was needed there, he would head to the outpatient clinic to handle those patients and the duties in there. If he wasn't needed there right away, then he would go up to the wards and check with his inpatients. The work he was doing was important and it was really demanding. The hospital where he worked was a public hospital and it was limited in the resources and funding that it had available. While at the same time, as a public hospital, the patients and time demands seemed to continue increasing all the time. Mm -hmm. He found himself working more and more and feeling more and more stressed and strained to keep up the pace. But another aspect of the limited funding of the public hospital was that there didn't seem to be enough budget left to provide adequate security. There were several very crowded spaces within the hospital where an individual with a mental health episode or just a person with bad intents might cause a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a priority for hospitals who were doing their level best to simply handle the patient load. And so Dr. Wong had already treated several of his colleagues who had been injured in altercations with upset or distressed patients. Mm -hmm. So on February 18th, 2014, when Dr. Wong went to work that day, he was heading to the outpatient clinic with his phone in hand for the regular check-in with his registrar when he felt himself being pushed hard from behind. He didn't know what was going on. He thought there must be children playing in the lobby and they must have bumped into him. But as the thought fleeted through his mind, he slipped and fell. He realized he was lying in a pool of blood and then it hit him. He was being stabbed. <sighs> he was bleeding badly, but the knife kept coming at him. Over and over he was stabbed in his arms, hands, back. Once he looked up to see the blade on its path towards his eye, and he quickly turned his head just in time for the knife to hit his skull. He had thought at the time that had the blade gone through his eye socket, I mean, he's a neurosurgeon, of course his first thought is, brain. it would have pierced his brain, right? Yeah. As the chaos he was experiencing started to really sink in, he heard people yelling. Bystanders were stepping in to restrain the man who was wielding the knife. Dr. Wong, on the floor, felt tugging on his clothing. He was swiftly being dragged through a pair of doors out of the danger zone and all the way down the hospital halls to the emergency department. A trail of blood followed the path of his being pulled to safety. But he wasn't out of danger yet. He was bleeding profusely from the deepest wound in his back, which had pierced a lung and severed an artery. Part of that lung had to be removed in order to stop the bleeding. During the process of stopping the bleeding, he actually lost the entire volume of his blood supply. Shit. The man who had attacked Dr. Wong was named Karim Al-Salamin. Al-Salamin was 48 years old and was a patient at the hospital and the outpatient clinic. Dr. Wong had been part of the team treating Al-Salamin, but when he walked into the lobby, he had not recognized him because he sees a lot of patients and he just didn't notice this guy. Mm -hmm. Al-Salamin was apprehended and arrested. He was charged with attempted murder, but he was found to be not guilty due to mental impairment. The result of the legal procedure was that Al-Salami was committed to a secure mental health facility where he was ordered to remain for 25 years. Okay. The people who risked their lives to save Dr. Wong were wide-ranging. In the end, he had been stabbed 14 times. <sighs> so fast, too. So fast, and these people jumped in as soon as they saw something happening. Those who jumped into action to pull him away from Al-Salami included an intern doctor, Several nurses, a hospital technician, and amazingly, a leukemia patient. Holy a shit. leukemia patient who's going through their own hell jumped into this fray to save this man. I just think that's amazing. 
The surgical teams who worked to repair the damage and stop the bleeding included two cardiothoracic surgeons, a spinal surgeon, two colorectal surgeons, and three plastic surgeons. The plastic surgeons weren't there to make him beautiful again. They were there to repair the tendons and the muscles mm -hmm. in his hands and his arms. Because he's a surgeon, and he needs his hands and arms to work. Well, yeah, people forget that plastic surgery isn't just a Hollywood glam. It's also reconstruction of... Yeah, making these really intricate systems work properly mm -hmm. again. There was a lot of concern that despite saving his life, Dr. Wong's hands might not be able to do the delicate work of neurosurgery with all of the injuries that he had sustained. And he had just cuts and cuts and stitches. I can't imagine with self-defense wounds. Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah. I'll show you a picture later when we're done. So after all these surgeries, he had his hands and arms wrapped to splints for a month and a half, preventing him from doing anything for himself. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't dress himself. He wasn't able to clean himself after using the bathroom. He said, quote, I couldn't wipe my own backside. At times, I had my eight-year-old son helping me in the bathroom. If that's not humbling, I don't know what is. After the splints were removed and he had his hands and arms free again, he spent the next year working to regain the movement and the strength in his hands. He knows he was lucky and fortunate that his hand therapist who worked with him was able to get him back to the point where he was able to fully recover. I can't imagine the work that took. He ultimately returned to work, but at a different hospital. He felt it would be too difficult to return to that location of the attack every single day for his job. Dr. Wong explained that now that he had a better understanding of what it was actually like to be a patient, the fear, the pain, the loss of control, that now he's a better doctor because he has this insight and new empathy that he... He had empathy before, but now it's more of an I really understand because I've been there. And he has spent time and effort sending correspondence and writing publication opinion pieces to make the case for greater protection of hospital staff. Even if no criminal ever walks into a hospital, which is obviously unrealistic, just by the virtue of hospitals being for sick people, there are sometimes going to be people who might unexpectedly hurt someone in that environment. Mm -hmm. Three years after Dr. Wong's close call, Another doctor in Melbourne was sucker-punched in the lobby of Box Hill Hospital, but unfortunately, cardiothoracic surgeon Dr. Patrick Pritzwald Stegman spent a month in a coma in intensive care, and he did not survive. Wow. He was confronting someone who was smoking too close to the front doors. Oh my god, over something so and fucking stupid. They followed him back into the hospital and punched him once in the face, hit him so hard that he, he went into a coma and never came out of it. Mm. Hospital staff tend to get beaten on, bashed, sprayed with blood or urine, spit on, or even held hostage far more often than the public is aware of. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Wong's attempts to bring attention to the safety of staff and faculty is really important. According to Dr. Simon Judkins, in an article from 2017, there had been a growing number of patients who had become dangerous and violent, and that without the funding to properly protect the staff of emergency departments, staff sometimes was putting these violent patients into comas and on ventilators and then sticking them in the ICU to control them as a last resort. Mm -hmm. He said that emergency departments should all have a secure room for restraining these dangerous individuals, but since they didn't have these rooms available, the staff was often at their wit's end to find ways to do their jobs without being killed, injured, or taken hostage at knife point. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a horrible thing to have to do, but they don't feel they have another choice because they can't do their jobs with someone threatening and trying to hurt them. 
And you have to think, if that person is so not in their right mindset that they're willing to hurt this person who's trying to help them, they're also a danger to themselves at that point. Right. And even if you just simply restrain them with the restraints they have on the bed, they can pull their arms out of socket. They can do all these things to themselves where if they just put them out, fix what needs fixed, figure out what's going on, yeah, it's better and a lot more Well, and by the time they wake up again, you've got someone there who is able to psychiatrically mm-hmm. help this person because yeah. an emergency room doctor may have training in how to handle mental health crises, but they're still not necessarily psychiatrists. Yeah, they so. can't diagnose everything just based off of... <laughs> it's right. just not rational to think that they would know every single <laughs> diagnosis in the book. What, you don't think so? No. I mean, maybe Dr. Wong, he sounds like incredible, so I don't... I believe he could. So I thought to myself, all this information that I was reading about was from 2017. Mm-hmm. So maybe things have changed for the better in hospitals in Australia over the last six years. Oh boy, I don't like that inflection you just did. <laughs> but it does not appear so. Okay. An article in the Sydney Morning Herald from last September 2022 states that emergency departments are still struggling now, even more than before, because of the increased number of psychological distress cases, which exploded during the pandemic, mm-hmm. and drug addiction cases, which have exploded for the last, what, 10 or 15 years? Yeah. Along with typical delays and wait times, people try to get into their primary doctor. They can't because the wait time is too long, so they go to the emergency department when they're having a meltdown. Mm -hmm. And then things just go right to hell in a handbasket. Makes sense. And this isn't me picking on Australia. It's hospitals all over the world that are having a rough go of it. Mm -hmm. They're all having trouble doing what they need to do with the funding that's available. But Dr. Wong's points are well taken. Busy areas of the hospital that are open to the public should always have security stationed in them. And fewer busy areas of the hospital should be open to the public. If you have fewer places where disgruntled or distraught or addicted or mentally disturbed patients can physically go, Mm -hmm. then you have a better chance of controlling whatever that person might end up doing. Also, he says that hospital staff should not have to enter and exit by the same doors that the public does. And that makes a lot of sense, too. He wants staff to have secure entries. Had this been the case, his attack would not have happened because he would have been coming in a door where patients couldn't be lying in wait for him. Yeah. So do they know, was he specifically going after him or was it just the first person that man saw? No, I don't think he was the first person he saw. I think the patient recognized Dr. Wong. Okay. But I don't know if Dr. Wong was his primary target or if he was just the first person he recognized. Okay. Dr. Wong said he didn't struggle psychologically too much in the aftermath of the attack. He said that his experience as a surgeon and just as a human in general had already taught him there isn't always a why. Mm -hmm. You know, as a person of the world, you know sometimes shit just happens and you don't have any control over that. Yeah. Sometimes bad things just happen to good people. And since he had already understood that bad things can happen to any of us at any time, He was able to compartmentalize his emotions about the attack and just get busy with the process of healing. But like I said, he also chose not to return to the same hospital where he would have just tormented himself every day, forcing himself to relive that experience every time he walked through that door. Mm -hmm. He also knows that what happened to Dr. Pritzwald Stegman easily could have been him. He said, quote, I did not know him personally, but clearly Patrick was doing valuable, life-saving work for the Australian community when he was cut down in his prime. And of course, he wasn't just a surgeon, but a husband and father too. 
It's a senseless loss that no family should have to endure and one that tragically further underlines the importance of getting hospital security right, end quote. Dr. Pritzwald Stegman was only 41 when he was, wow. when he was killed. Yeah, wow. So now, in his current life, his survivor life, Dr. Wong consults for several different Melbourne hospitals and has his own consulting website, drmwong.com. Another of his advocacy efforts involves treatment of chronic back pain without the use of opioids, because opioid addiction is another of the factors that have increased the level of violence and danger for medical providers. Mm-hmm. And it's also a motive for people who want to come in and cause mayhem because they think they might be able to get some drugs out of it. Yeah, if I go nuts, so they'll just prescribe it to me just to get me out of there. Is right. A common mindset, I feel like. But also mm. because it's a quality of life issue and sometimes life or death issue for his chronic pain patients. Yeah. He has also pioneered intricate surgeries to help cancer patients cope with otherwise too long and too painful and just really unwieldy surgeries that their bodies can't handle because of all the other stuff that cancer patients are going through. He's devised ways to avoid having spinal patients midway have to be flipped over. Oh, yeah. Because if the vertebra that they're working on, if it's damaged in the front of you, First, they have to go to the back and stabilize your back, so they've got you laying on your stomach. Mm -hmm. But then after they stabilize it in the back, they have to flip you over so that they can reach the stuff in the front. So he's devised a surgical method that allows all of it to be done from the same position. It's a lot less risky to the patient, and the surgery takes like half as much time. So he's really making strides in improving the quality of life and the ability for surgeons to fix things that cancer patients may not have been able to live through that surgery in the past. So he just wants to get the job done, but in a less invasive... I don't know if it's less invasive, but it's less... Traumatic to the body, maybe? Yes, yes. Because, like, I know what you're talking about. But it just, it makes it so that they aren't... They don't have incisions on the front and the back now. It's not being invaded from both sides of their body now. He's doing it all from the back, and therefore it's just making the surgery a lot easier on patients who have already been through so much physically trying to fight their cancer. i got to look this guy up now because I'm curious. <laughs> he sounds like, he just sounds like an absolutely amazing well, doctor. He's just so well-rounded, it sounds like. Yeah. Ugh. He just seems like a really, really great person. So... All of that was to say Dr. Wong has done just a world of good to save people's lives, to improve people's quality of life, and in addition to all that, he's still advocating for improved security conditions at all hospitals, mm-hmm. not just the ones where he consults. I just hope that Dr. Michael Wong will keep up his good fight yeah. to improve the safety and security conditions for all of his colleagues so they can focus on saving lives, which is what they're all there to do. Oh, and I think about all of his coworkers that day. That must have been terrifying. I mean... Oh, for sure. Because, yeah, you're good at compartmentalizing things as a doctor and people work in the ER, but when it's somebody you know, it's a whole new ball game, you know? Well, and the, the leukemia patient who was there probably for their <laughs> chemo, yeah. they're there to get treated themselves in the outpatient mm. clinic, and here they are dragging a neurosurgeon by his shirt through the hospital to save him from a guy who's gone crazy with a knife. That story really moved me. Me too. But Dr. Wong. (laughs) I think that's all I have for episode 58. 
Thank you for joining us, crime family. We hope you'll join us again next week for episode 59. And if you don't, we're coming after you. If you don't, we'll send Flutch. She's the scariest, so. She is. She's super scary. She's got Edward Scissorhand hands. (laughs) Lots of them. She's got five. No, just four. Just four. (laughs) What? (laughs) She's got four Edward Scissorhand hands. She's got five balls. I didn't say she was with all of them. I didn't say she was like other cats. All right, (laughs) she's not like other cats. (laughs) All right, that's enough. Yeah. Bye, guys. Share us if you want. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And I found all the Reddit Swedish crime law forums I could find. And Were there as, a lot? Especially in English. Good at compart- compartmentali- compartmentalizing. And he's a cutie too, I found his picture. I can't date anymore Michaels. You should know that. <laughs> We're done with Michaels. <laughs> We're definitely done with Michaels. I hope you'll be back with us. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Apparently, don't forget to cut that out.